Welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jack Snufflin. Thank you for joining us for episode nine of our Racket on a Boat. This is round two, where the survivors from round one might make it to shore. This week, we are discussing Titanic, as well as the Hunt for Red October. And these movies kind of start and end the 90s in their own way. I mean, Titanic's only 97, but it was still towards the end of that decade. I mean... As a stretch, which is a mistake. Oh, well, here we are. It, it definitely is a stretch, because most decades culturally do not have a very definitive end. The 90s does. Yeah. Uh, it ended September 11th, 2001. Yes. Sure, what was coming out in 1999? Like, what's the actual, like, end of that decade? Uh, The Matrix. Oh, sure. Actually, yeah, I think The Matrix is probably a better way to... The Matrix Fight Club, better ways to end the 90s, as it were. Yeah, and those do a good job of transitioning to the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. There's a continuity of, okay, this is the direction we're going. But this is all completely beside the points. <laughs> yeah, I just had a connection that, you know, two ships passing in the night were my brain cells. There's only two of them in this dark there. Yeah, and while both of these came out in the 90s, both of them are also very much concerned with the past. Mm-hmm. I mean, Titanic, obviously, but with Hunt for Red October, we're dealing with, you know, Cold War era Soviet Union, which by the time this film came out was no longer really a thing. Mm-hmm. And now we are a further few decades removed from it. Mm-hmm. So the stressors of it are further away and harder for us to understand since we were kind of born after the time period or at the very least like we weren't people until after neither of us were conscious of the stressors of the ongoing cold war no uh, and well, we've talked about this before that's why watchman doesn't really land well with us mm-hmm. the, the comic anyway <laughs> the, the movie for a variety of other reasons we've got a couple episodes on it feel free to go listen to those yeah we did two Watchmen episodes didn't we Oof. i mean it was that or wanted not doing two of that Oh, we are doing two of it. The Titanic. You mentioned you have uh, Fabrizio thoughts. I do have Fabrizio thoughts. Let's talk about Fabrizio. The movie doesn't seem interested in doing so. Yeah, I could do America. <laughs> no, mate. Uh, my first thought is Jack and Fabrizio are just early 1900s Drake and Josh. Well, hey, that curse is not too proud to me. <laughs> but tell me I'm wrong. I mean, Jack is obviously Drake and Fabrizio is obviously Josh. Okay, let's pretend that I'm not good at names. Which one winds up being a fascist, and which one winds up being arrested for uh, protesting as part of the Black Lives Matter marches. I have no idea. Drake's the one who attempted a commusiker. Josh Peck is the one who long-bottomed. I'm thinking of Zack and Cody, and not Drake and Josh. <laughs> uh, completely different channel. But I understand the mistake. You didn't have cable as a child. I did not. So tell me more about the saga of Drake and Josh, so I can have some clarity here. Like Drake and Josh is just, you know, early 2000s, Children's sitcom, two teenagers get into wacky, ridiculous hijinks. It mm. was on Nickelodeon, and it starred Drake Bell and Josh Peck mm. as stepbrothers after their parents married. Hug me, brother! Mm-hmm. And just the energy that those two have is very much the same energy that Jack and Fabrizio have in this. Wow, he did long bottom. <laughs> I told you. Uh, Drake and Josh started in 2004. But yeah, they definitely do fit into a certain trope of like the protagonist and his wacky friend, um, mm-hmm. with that, that like that dynamic that lets them egg each other on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but like onto more serious thoughts for Fabrizio, I think he needs to be in this more or less. Yeah, I mean, we have a few scenes with O'Neill from Deep Space Nine. Sorry, I have to step in with a correction here. 
what Jackson meant to say was O'Brien from Deep Space Nine, referring to the character Mouse O'Brien, not O'Neill, as that could be confused with Trisha O'Neill, the actress who played Karinas in a single episode in season three. However, referencing O'Brien doesn't make sense here either, since the actor who portrays him, Colin Meany, while Irish, doesn't appear in Titanic. Instead, the actor playing Tommy Ryan is Jason Barry, and Jackson is just terrible with faces. Honestly, if we didn't record an episode every week, I'm not sure they'd even recognize me. Anyway, back to the discussion. And if you just replace all those scenes with Fabrizio, we'd be fine. Like, we don't need this other character who is sort of there to exist Irishly. Oh, forget it, Boyle. You just like how the angels fly out of your arse is getting next to the likes of her. Mm-hmm. It's weird. I don't know why he's here apart from, I guess, someone for Jack to bounce off of for the first... 20 to 30 minutes of the flashback sequence. Yeah, I think part of it's that. I think part of it is also attempting to convey more of the immigration situation because both of our main characters are Americans returning to the United States, Mm -hmm. whereas Fabrizio is immigrating there. Mm -hmm. And so the way we understand his journey is much different and to a certain extent is much more tragic. Yeah. But I think because we spend not that much time with him, it doesn't feel tragic. It could be tragic. Yes. It is not. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree. Fabrizio is like just on this knife's edge. It would make sense for him to just kind of be removed and be another extra. And, oh, this is someone Jack helped get on the boat. And they kind of run into each other a few times. Mm-hmm. Or for him to be a much more significant character and kind of be a confidant while Jack is trying to woo Rose. If he was the Jonathan to Jack's Evie, as it were, if he kind of like around bumbling through things before dying tragically. Yeah, or if he was like his wingman. Yeah, yeah. If he like helped like run a distraction so that Jack and Rose could be together yeah. or whatever. Honestly, having him bounce off of Mrs. Brown, mm-hmm. that would have been very fun. I can easily imagine that since she's so witty and wry and he's just so bouncing off the wallsy. Mm-hmm. Oh, that'd be a great road trip. Mm-hmm. Definitely opportunities to include him more in the plot, but they decided not to. I think part of that is because most of the stuff going on with Jack at the beginning of the film is kind of left by the wayside as soon as he meets Rose and starts going down that path. To a certain extent, the film is about Jack cleaning up mm-hmm. and moving into this different social cast. And I think the film wants you to feel like Rose is kind of doing the reverse and kind of coming down, but the actual text of the film, I don't think, supports that too much. Yeah, she doesn't wind up, like, poor at at the end of her life. She sort of is not wildly rich, but she's doing pottery in her own home. Like, there's a certain level of class you need to be able to achieve that. Yeah, like, she also became an actress. Yeah, which, being a performer is a different kind of wealth and access, but it still is a certain amount of, like, prestige. Like, she's, mm-hmm. it seems like she was not really wanting for funding. Yeah. I'd say it's less to do with class and finances and more to do with freedom. Rose gave Jack something to really care about more than himself, and Jack gave Rose the ability to live life by her own terms, mm-hmm. which I think is a, you know, a compelling story. I'm into yeah. that. There's definitely this theme of freedom throughout the film, but I also think that Fabrizio could have easily played into that as a immigrant looking for new beginnings, looking for new opportunities in America. Like he he talks about longing to see the Statue of Liberty. Oh! I can see the Statue of Liberty already. Very small, of course. 
they could have played with that. And again, like there's also some things of freedom coming from uh, Mrs. Brown. Her husband has recently become rich and she isn't going to play by all of these stuffy rules of high society. Like she has money now, but she's still her. Mm -hmm. And she is proud to enable... Rose casting off shackles by helping Jack, like, get all dressed up for the party. Mm -hmm. You and my son are just about the same size. Pretty close. You shine up like a new penny. I agree that, like, we need to do more with Fabrizio as a character because that might have given us more opportunities to, like, spend some time with the people, like, in steerage. Mm -hmm. uh, Which we get some of, but not that much. It's mostly only through Jack and Rose's eyes. They're only seeing it when they're there. Which I guess also makes sense because... Rose is telling the story. Like, to a certain extent, there's that, but there's also plenty of parts of the film where it doesn't make lots of sense for Rose to be knowledgeable about what exactly happened and for her to be able to give us the point of view that we're getting. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, they wanted this to be a story told through Rose's perspective, but they definitely gave her little bits of omniscience. Mm-hmm. Which I'll allow for the sake of storytelling, fair enough. And I can imagine Jack would have told her some stories off screen when they were just, you know, hanging out. Yeah. But it it does make some of the narrative a little bit muddled because of that. Yeah, we talked about her as an unreliable narrator and how that kind of could have been leaned into more. Mm-hmm. Really, there's a lot of parts of this that are very human that don't really get leaned into as much because we're so focused on the disaster piece. Mm-hmm. If you shift a bit more of the sinking to like solve the act three as opposed to starting at the midpoint that might have allowed more space for someone to breathe yeah to fabrizio <laughs> aren't you sorry you came over just a little and i definitely agree because once the sinking starts we're mostly focused on jack and rose and to a certain extent cal and for the most part the human toll of the disaster and the fuck-ups of those in power are not necessarily glossed over, but they're kind of just like these small little vignettes and the big story is still Jack and Rose. Mm -hmm. Which I think would be fine if we didn't kind of have these characters. And also because Rose is narrating it, I can understand how that would be her focus point, but Mm -hmm. still. It's more of a problem of we have all of these interesting characters in the first half of the film, and then we kind of just forget about most of them as soon as the ship starts sinking, and we just pay them lip service. Mm-hmm. We talked about this with other movies on the bracket, how they do a lot of good job introducing characters in the first act, and then not knowing what to do with them all at the end. And it's kind of a pity, because you know, it would be a good opportunity to have more things happening. Like, the way Titanic handles it, it's honestly like a movie version of... That thing that happens in real life when you have a friend who starts a new relationship and then you never see them Mm -hmm. because they're so involved with their new partner. Yeah. That's effectively what this is. We have all these vibrant characters that we're introduced to and then Rose and Jack finally decide, yeah, we're doing this. And then they all get their little bits of screen time, but that's it. Which in the like miniseries version of this we kind of talked about would be a good call-out moment of, like, Fabrizio going, Jack, we were supposed to be on this adventure together, but you were just on the rose garden. (laughs) There's a euphemism. (laughs) And this is kind of a gruesome take on it, but if... Well, no, we know how Fabrizio dies, so never mind. I was going to say, if he was, like, one of the frozen bodies in that scene at the end where it's horrifying, uh, that might have made those bodies people as opposed to just... Numbers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Last time we talked about how ridiculous Fabrizio's death is, because it just kind of comes out of nowhere, and yeah, we're going to have the steam stack fall on him. I also don't think it 
helps with trying to take that scene seriously with how Fabrizio has been personified beforehand. Mm -hmm. Like, he's never really a serious character, and then you give him this very serious scene, and it it, it just doesn't land. Mm -hmm. I think if there'd been just a little bit of him trying to, like, make to a lifeboat, or if he decided to give up his spot for someone else, so so we'd have, like, a moment of gravitas from him, so that it would feel a bit more impactful, that could have been really good. Mm Mm-hmm. We're ragging on this a bit. I do want to praise how, like, the emotionalism of this movie works. Like, we are in the business of unpacking movies, but, like, when you're watching it, I wasn't thinking a lot of this stuff. The way in which this film works on an emotional level, not really a practical level, I think is still satisfying, and I don't want to downplay that. Oh, yeah, I think Rose's emotional journey is fantastic, and she has plenty of highs and lows that are very compelling throughout the film. In the first act, she's very uh, witty and sharp-tongued, and it leads to some fantastic moments, like when they're at, I think it's breakfast, and she's talking with the guy who funded the Titanic, and he's bringing up size, and then she brings up Freud. (laughs) I wanted to convey sheer size. And size means stability, luxury, and above all, strength. Do you know of Dr. Freud, Mr. Ismay? His ideas about the male preoccupation with size might be of particular interest to you. I am curious how much of that is what really happened, how many of these are zingers she thinks that she would have said if, if she'd thought of them one time that she'd enter into her narrative later. I mean, history is written by those who survive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they are good zingers, and I will allow them to be real. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is the music too. Like, just, it's I don't think we talked about it last time. Like, the soundtrack, you know, soundtrack. The one song that everybody knows is very evocative and is still stuck in my head. I bring this up because there's an episode of Supernatural where a character goes back in time and saves the Titanic because he couldn't get that song out of his head and causes like problems ha- having done so. What is Supernatural? No one knows anymore. But the cultural ubiquity of that particular song is one that I think you had, could just say, "My heart will go on." I can't remember what the title was. <laughs> The culture you've created for people who are not useless, like me, is a lot, and that's a good microcosm of, of what stuck with people about this movie, the emotionality and the uh, melodrama of it. Mm-hmm. Like, people don't really talk about it in, like, action film circles, they talk about it in terms of the romance tropes. Mm. Like, the romance subplot is just really, really fantastic, it's really well done. I honestly would not have expected such from Cameron. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's surprisingly good here. Like, there are all these little things. We have Jack and Cal who are vying for Rose, but their approaches are so very different. Like, there's a perfect scene where Jack is, he's in a suit, he's joining them for dinner, and the whole night, Jack is wooing Rose, Cal is wooing Rose's mother. Mm-hmm. Which tells you everything you need to know, really. Yes, like, it tells you exactly what sort of dynamics both of these people are used to working in, what their end goals are, how much they value Rose's opinion. Mm-hmm. But also how much they understand of how society works. Because if they were going to continue living in the society that really doesn't exist after this time here, like this is kind of the death throes of this era of romance and power in a lot of ways. American aristocracy. That. Um, <laughs> Cal is right. He doesn't need to like, woo the family and not the person if, if he wants that to happen. And Jack doesn't know that because he kind of represents this like much more modern world. Should also mention that when we're talking about uh, the American aristocracy, it doesn't mean that it's gone away. It just changed quite a bit. Right. The social mores and etiquette guides have shifted substantially. Yes. Between the two world wars, that kind of like really changed a lot. Mm-hmm. I wish I could say that I know this because of like 
a nuanced understanding of history and culture. I know this because I've watched Downton Abbey. <laughs> uh, you don't expect the Titanic to be a major plot point on that show, but, you know, here we are. But there's an element of the, that romance that isn't just relationship romance, but like the like romanticism versus uh, rationalism that uh, I like. And these are not my points. This is uh, Lindsay Ellis put out a video about this recently, and I'm just cribbing from her entirely. Go watch that. We start the film with very long intro that I, I still think is, o- is a bit overly long, but I understand it a little bit better now that I've had this perspective on it, that you have all these folks who are looking at the Titanic in this very cold, empirical, kind of greedy way. And Rose is here to bring them some perspective of like the humanity and the, the lives that were lost as opposed to the mechanicalness of it. Yeah. Like for her, the thinking is uh, this big emotional thing as opposed to this computer simulation. And I think that that is a good attempt by the film to achieve that goal. I don't know if audiences quite got that as much as they maybe might have done. Like what was being called out, I don't know if it called it out specifically enough. Yeah, I don't think it was overt enough. And I think part of that is because we spend so little time in the frame story after Rose gets going. Mm-hmm. There's not enough to directly parallel Bill Paxton to Cal. I can see how the parallel might be supposed to be there. I don't think it's quite obvious now. I think like, we need like one line from him that was repeated by Cal later or something. Mm-hmm. That hacky but still very useful trope. Like We get one conversation between Rose's granddaughter and him. Three years. I've thought of nothing except Titanic. But I never got it. I never let it in. And I think if that had been expounded a little bit or had been a series of conversations, it, it could have worked better. Again, what we want from the miniseries. And we don't really see much of how they act after the story is told, so we don't know much about how to unpack the change that this may or may not have wrought in them, because we don't know if there is one. Yeah, it's not like Rose gives them the giant diamond sapphire. Diamond, I think. Yeah. The the big piece of jewelry, and they decide, you know, this belongs in a museum, as opposed to, I'm gonna sell it. Mm-hmm. Like, Rose never tells them where it is, and they just kind of give up, and then she chucks it into the ocean. Yeah. Or rather, they assume that it is lost forever with her coat. It's a thing that I think, in the heart of the sea, does better, because we have that conversation in the frame story where Herman Melville directly tells us, this is how I have changed because of what you have told me. It's not necessarily well done, but I can see how there is the arc clearly made there. Sometimes being unsubtle works. The movie is definitely not like one for subtlety all the time. Yeah, but I, I definitely agree. In the Heart of the Sea uses its frame story much better than Titanic does. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the code of diamonds, in parts of the Caribbean, I talked about how I like tracking MacGuffins. And on that level, I appreciate Titanic having this MacGuffin that does in fact move around a lot that we know is going to move at some point. It's, it's just fun to watch. It brings me joy. It's a small thing. It doesn't move around too much until like the very end. Mm-hmm. One thing I do want to talk about is the frame story. We get a lot of like technical underwater videography and stuff like that, which we, we talked about before is James Cameron's like bread and butter. He loves that sort of stuff and pushing the boundaries of what you're able to do with the technology at the time. But it also gets used outside of the frame story in the flashbacks with Rose. Like we see a shot of the propellers starting up when the Titanic is first beginning on its journey. And then we get some like point of view camera shots as the ship is flooding and Jack and Rose are trying to make it out. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it works. I think it harms suspension of disbelief. Mm. Because we're seeing 
that was used so heavily at the beginning of the film and we're associating it with that's why we're we're doing this now we can finally explore the titanic because we have all this new technology and whatnot and then using that same stuff for this flashback it just it feels dissonant to me i don't think it's enough to like sink the whole film but i do think that Cameron liked his toys a little bit too much, and it led to some weirdness in the third act. Sure, that's fair. That's less of a problem for me, but I can I get where you're coming from with that. Mm-hmm. I'm also just a sucker for underwater photography stuff. Yeah, um, like I'm not saying it's a huge problem. It's just a a thing I noticed that was like irking me while I was watching it. Mm. It makes me question how much Cameron thought of the film as two parallel stories as opposed to one whole story. Well, I mean, I've, I still wouldn't say it's like parallel stories. It's just one story with like in a bucket. And, and Cameron drilled a hole in it. Yeah, <laughs> as it were. But also on the flip side, I get how if you have the technology, you may as well use it. So mm-hmm. There may have been ways to make it work a little bit better. I think part of it is that the shots are so clean. Mm, yeah, that's fair. I could also say the same for like how clean the water is that's coming into the ship and everything it's like fine. that. It's fine. It, this is all done on like sound stages and stuff, and it's not like they're gonna cover these actors with dirty seawater. <laughs> like that's not fair to them. I get why they did it, but I definitely noticed. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, we have the same thing in uh, the Poseidon Adventure where it have this, like we are clearly in a pool for some of these shots. Mm-hmm. To be fair, with the Poseidon Adventure, they do try and obfuscated a little bit by making the water so churned up and frothy that we're not really able to tell that it's very clean. Sure, sure. I'm thinking especially of the um, the bit with, there's like that uh, the hallway that's submerged that I have to go through a few times. Yes. Yeah. Which is functionally the same thing with Titanic here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, those underwater shots don't feel the same way that the ones in Titanic do. They don't, like, draw me out of everything. Mm. But I think part of that is because that film is filmed roughly contemporarily as opposed to being a period piece. Yeah, that's true. But you know what what kind of does have actually pretty murky water and does have a good balance of making the water feel claustrophobic and full of particulates, but also still clear what's happening? The Hunt for Red October. I will definitely agree with that. I really like the use of uh, models for the submarines and all of that outside of the sub filming. All of that works really well. Yeah. It can be really hard to get that balance, and I think that it's a problem that a lot of CGI artists have these days, is that they have, like Cameron, too many tools at their disposal, so we've got, like, these wacky angle shots, and all these particulates, and all these bubbles and stuff, and because they couldn't really do all of that here, we got this slightly stripped-down, cleaner version of Underwater, and it's more obvious what's happening, which is better for the story. But it doesn't feel fake, it doesn't feel like they just have, like, a shot of some rocks that they superimpose the sub on. Mm-hmm. They're able to convey the depth and claustrophobia of being in a sub while still being able to make it readable to an audience. I think part of that is also a use of the colored lights underwater, which definitely helps because it allows you to to be able to see and it makes a scene legible. But because the lights are colored, we understand them very much as artificial, which means it doesn't look fake because everything's too bright it's oh these these subs have lights on them and that's why we're able to see which also gives some good visual dynamism to the shot so it's not just a sub you got like these points of light that kind of create some visual contrast Mm -hmm. we we talked about this last time but they also use those colored lights on the interiors of the sub and that kind of gives some continuity to them and it also helps us differentiate between different 
naval interiors that otherwise would look pretty much exactly the same. I will say that a lot of the subs look pretty much the same. I get that, you know, that's kind of just how subs be, but as someone who is more interested in style than substance, I would much rather have, you know, one of the subs have, like, cool wavy things, and one of them be much more, like, angular, and one of them be bright white and covered in Nautilus designs. (laughs) I fucking knew that you were going to bring up Captain Nemo. Shouldn't we all? But yeah, I do want to give a lot of credit to the cinematographer Jen DeBont, who has done a lot of things. On the one hand, great stuff like Twister, Die Hard, Minority Reports. I have no strong feelings about it as a movie, but like Cujo and Equilibrium both look good. He also did Speed 2, so... (sighs) Admittedly, Speed 2 did not look bad. The cinematography was not bad in that movie. The effects are the thing that looked bad. Yes. Which is not the cinematographer's fault, per se. Yes. But, yeah... There's a lot of really pleasant cinematography in this that makes it really stand out. A thing that jumped out to me was we open the film in a snowy estuary. It's bright white, and you have these trees in the background while they're sitting on a sub. And then we end it in a less snowy estuary, and it's dark, but it's still like, lit with these somehow very soft but cold lights. And the same music is playing, or at least the same kind of music is playing. And it's a beautiful book ending of the movie. I don't think it's actually the last shot, because you've got like, one or two of Jack Ryan asleep on a plane. But whatever. Yeah, but, but Jack Ryan does get bookends as well. Like, we start off, he's in a study, whatnot, and then he immediately has to hop on a plane, and then our last, very last scene of the film is him on a plane heading back to the UK, where mm-hmm. his family is. Yeah. It's a thing you notice more on a rewatch. There's a lot of ways in which this film is making this tense, dramatic story very comfortable by giving us a lot of things to latch onto, like the bookendings that help bring us into and then back out of the space Instead of just kind of dropping us in and then leaving. Speaking of uh, the turbulence thing, I feel like there's a metaphor here that I didn't pick up on the first time. Our protagonist is uncomfortable with turbulence, and there's a giant political uh, turmoil happening that he helps resolve, and then it's okay with turbulence now. It's not subtle. I kind of like it. It was too subtle, in fact. So I guess it is subtle. Fuck what I just said five minutes ago. I mean, when you started to bring up turbulence, I thought we were going to talk about the flight attendant who doesn't know what turbulence is. She absolutely does. She's just humoring him. (laughs) Or she can't not know. I mean, that would be ridiculous for her to not know what turbulence is. Like, unless it's like her first day on the job. But even then, that seems completely impossible. I think it's mostly there for Jack Ryan to like give the audience a definition, but that also seems weird. It's also not hard to explain what turbulence is visually. You just be on a plane and then things shake a little bit. Yeah. Like, this is not rocket science. Yeah. They figured out how to do this back in the 60s with Star Trek. I mean, okay. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. I, you... <laughs> hmm. There's something wrong with what you just said, but I can't figure out what. But yeah, like people broadly should understand turbulence. I think there's more to talk about like the science of it, the solar wind and all that jazz, mm-hmm. which cool to know about. Doesn't really play into things unless there's a deeper metaphor that I'm not aware of. Yeah, like unless one of the subs was like solar powered or something. That doesn't sound like it'd be a thing that works. That might be a really interesting update. If you do this movie now, subs that run on solar power would be a revolution to how naval engineering happens because you wouldn't have to rely on nuclear powered subs. I do think some submarines now do have some solar paneling, but it's not their main source of energy. It's more of a, like, recycling thing. Like, they've got all this space that, for the most part, goes unused, so might as well cover it in solar panels when they surface. Right. Like we should for everything. Yeah, like parking lots. (laughs) My house. I need to get it painted first, but then the multi-phase thing. Again, always differentiate the subs. Look, this one's shiny. (laughs) 
Oh, speaking of solar panels, therefore sunlight, therefore lighting, the thing I wanted to bring up last time, didn't get around to, Jonesy, our only black character in this movie, is well lit. The internals of a sub help light his skin. Well, mm. good job, Jenza Bombs. It even happens when they transfer subs because he ends up on the Red October. Mm-hmm. Which is nice. I'm sad that there's a very low bar of can light black people well, but you know. Nice. I think part of it is also here we're getting some of the precursor to bisexual lighting. Yeah. And it works for a wide variety of skin tones. Right. While we're just talking about bisexuality and therefore gender. <laughs> I might have talked about this before. There are no women in this at all. Apart from, you know, the stewardess and Jack Ryan's wife who has a line and his daughter who has a line uh, and... Ramius' dead wife. I wish there was. this wasn't such a doodly film. Yeah. I, I get it. It's just, eh, I'm here to complain. Yeah. Early 90s, and it's a military political thriller. Mm-hmm. Even if we just had, like, a senator's aide or something that was a woman. Because those scenes between the senator and the ambassador, the Russian ambassador, are fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I think we could have done a little bit more with those, and I think you could have easily had a female staffer there. Mm-hmm. Or even had a female senator. I had to say this, it would be forced diversity, TM. <laughs> but mostly because of the way that we construct politics and especially politics of corruption, we frame politics of corruption as old white men, which is broadly true, but mm-hmm. yeah. But there are also some old white women who are... Just as bad, yeah. Yep. Like, it's that one tweet like uh, that liberalism is saying 50% of all fascist dictators should be women. <laughs> I acknowledge that unfortunately because of the, of the time period and the type of movie this is, you would almost kind of have to... Have a woman justify her existence in this narrative? Which yeah, sucks. like I'm not saying like you couldn't easily just cast a woman there. It's fine. It's just that the type of author Tom Clancy is, and the type of people who read his books, and the type of people who would produce this film would be a constant uphill battle to do so. Mm-hmm. I will say that replacing Jack Ryan with say Jacqueline Ryan, have him played by like Gillian Anderson, Laura Dern, someone in that area, could have been really fun, and that would have been a, a fun kick-ass role for a woman at a fairly early time, comparatively. Mm-hmm. movies. My only concern with doing a gender flip on Jack is the way the fear of flying is read. Mm-hmm. I think it would be v- very different, um, and I'm not sure it would have the same impact. That's fair. Also, I'm a fool. I should have just said Sandra Bullock. <laughs> as we know, she does very well as a government analyst. No, I get you. There are so many characters that are clearly like meant to be men in this narrative you kind of again have to find a way to bring women into it which which i don't love mm. honestly i think it probably would have been easier to add more women onto the red october than mm. it would have been to add any american women unfortunately you're probably right i mean i don't know a lot a lot about gender politics in russia at the time or now honestly if i'm being honest russia is a mystery to me but yeah, that could have easily been a thing. Maybe someone just had a wife they brought along and it created some tension because she was a stowaway or whatever. Mm-hmm. Someone brought their daughter onto the sub or something. Which would have been, honestly, very scary, but would have created some interesting tension. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially since you have a lot of people who are attempting to defect, trying to sneak their family aboard, or like, oh, these are just exercises, like, come see what daddy does for work, sort of thing. Exactly. And we would still then have women who exist in relation to the men in their lives as opposed to being here on their own merits, but it would at least have like women in the narrative. Mm-hmm. Something. So this is something that I think needs to compare the films. We talked about how Fabrizio really wants to see the Statue of Liberty. That's a valid thing. Good immigrant thing right there. Also, I have a lot of feelings about the Statue of Liberty and uh, Emma Lazarus's poem and all that jazz. It's a whole big thing. But it's not that 
unique of a thing. It's a very abstract the idea of what an immigrant might want out of America, as opposed to the very concrete desires like having a pickup truck and several wives in different states that the Russians in this movie are talking about. And I will live in Montana. And I will marry a round American woman and raise rabbits. And she will cook them for me. And I will have a pickup truck. I think that those are a better way of making the desire concrete there. This tells us more about the things that you, you know, presumably don't have in Russia. Women, I guess. <laughs> and pickup trucks. Yeah, it, it does unfortunately kind of conflate America with consumerism and capitalism, but especially at the time, it's not factually incorrect. <laughs> Has it ever not been? It feels reductive now, but at the time, it definitely would have been, yes, this is exactly what we're all about. And like, we, we are promoting this part of ourselves instead of being ashamed of it like we should be. Mm -hmm. I can't believe this military slash spy thriller from the 90s written by <laughs> Tom Clancy doesn't do more to unpack the problems of American capitalism. <laughs> yeah, I agree that, that it's, the, the object lesson isn't necessarily a healthy thing, but I think just in terms of the writing component, it works. Yeah, like it... It gives us a much more concrete idea about why these people want to be in America as opposed to where they come from, as opposed to Fabrizio, who's, well, he's Italian as the early 1900s. A bunch of them came over. Mm -hmm. Good choice. Maybe not on this boat, but, you know, not being in Italy for the next few decades, probably a good plan. Hey, for effort. <laughs> I think that's another way that Hunter Hunter really works is we get a lot more time with characters just kind of chatting. I think a little bit less about in Titanic. It's in there, but we have more melodrama happening. So really, only Rose and Jack get to be all that concrete about. So um, uh, Molly Brown, I'll allow it. Mm -hmm. But Red October has a few more characters just having unimportant to the plot, but still character building moments. Yes, I think also there's. Much less spectacle in Red October. And I think the ways that it's used are much more interesting. Really, our first big spectacle piece is when Jack Ryan is transferring onto the Dallas. Mm -hmm. That whole scene is used for character building, and it's, it's building up a different type of tension than the film has, has been. I mean, I think that scene really works well, and I think it's something different that the film just... Like, it needed that change of pace right then. It's a breath of fresh air to just be a very simple self-contained scene that resolves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then we don't really get any action-heavy sequence until we've got everyone on the Red October and they are dealing with a hunter sub as well as the saboteur aboard. Mm -hmm. And I know you've talked about that that sequence is not... Your favorite. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I don't mind the sequence itself. I just don't think it needs to be here. But it's not a bad sequence, per se. I will say it may be a little, a tad on the long side. Yeah, I think, I think it's probably more of the trouble. I really do just love how almost directly it's referencing Die Hard. Yeah. <laughs> They're the same director, so it makes sense. Right. And I mean, Die Hard on a sub, that sounds great. Then again, Die Hard on an anywhere is a fun concept. Not always well done, but you know. Yeah. I yeah. mean, we literally just talked about how we wish Speed 2 was Die Hard on a boat. Mm -hmm. And while there are only a few scenes of action spectacle, I think there are other kinds of spectacle in this that are less obvious. Most of them being these big dramatic speeches by, fuck, what's his name? Not George Orwell. He's got a beard. He was in The League of Gentlemen and James Bond. Rainies. Sean Connery. Yeah. Sean Connery has these, like, big, beautiful speeches with his big, beautiful Sean Connery voice. Uh, Dr. Martino, like... When the world trembled at the sound of our rockets, well, they will tremble again at the sound of our silence. 
They're not trying to find Remus, they're trying to drive him. Drive him where? The hounds to the hunters. Your sub-captain's gonna make it to America all right, Mr. Ryan. He's gonna die within sight of it. You know, all that kind of stuff that are a form of spectacle akin to, say, the dancing in a musical or whatever, where we're watching the performance aspect more than the things that you would not see in real life. Because, like, I have never seen a person jump out of a helicopter into a sub. The best use of your Sean Connery is to have him monologue. He is excellent at it. Everyone hangs on his every word. That's what Sean Connery's all about. And having one of those speeches so early in the film does a really good job of helping us understand how this man was able to convince some of these people to get on board with his plan, or at least broadly get on board with his plan. He has charisma, he has gravitas, and he makes people believe in the impossible. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about Sean Connery, not (laughs) Ramius. His kind of old-world gravitas stands in contrast to all these American men in their suits and ties with their computers that feel more like the Bill Paxtons of the Titanic as opposed to the Roses of Titanic, where they're less romanticized, and so it helps you understand that this is a heightened character who has heightened ideals and a life, which is why we buy in so quickly to him having these high ideals about America that maybe aren't real. Mm -hmm. Or high ideals of America that we may know are not real, but we accept that people would believe in them. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where Hunt for Red October is more successful, is it makes me believe in and dream about the success of immigration more than Titanic does. Titanic makes me believe in the inherent validity of Rose living her life, but I think that that is largely unconnected with the broader social and historical context in which Titanic exists. Rose kind of attempts to humanize the tragedy of the Titanic, but she doesn't do it for everyone. She does it for her own personal tragedy that happened on the Titanic. And I think that the film is too long for that to be your thesis. (laughs) I think it does it very well, but you're right that there could have been more happening in that to, to really dig into more themes than Rose's humanity and some of the other, the broad problems with class and wealth and greed. I love Rose's story. It's fantastic. I think that the film is bogged down with other stuff. Rose's story does not fill up enough of the film, and unfortunately, the spectacle that they've decided to slot in as opposed to B-plots or trying to humanize other people and what they're going through on the Titanic, it doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. It's a four-hour movie to say a thing that could have been said in an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. So my vote is going to be for Hunt for October. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. I mean, both these films are very good, both worth watching. Titanic shouldn't necessarily feel bad. It's up against a very successful, very tight film that I think is also maybe a little bit more in line with what we tend to look for in things. Part of me feels really bad about knocking Titanic out this early. It is not my sort of film, and I don't want people to feel like I'm knocking it out because I don't like Rose's story. I think it's that those parts are good, but there's so much bloat to it that overall it's lesser i didn't mean for this to take us to the vote without uh, detouring to our end segment though my bad the ship of theseus award yes the, the red october versus the titanic what's more intact with the end of the movie i mean obviously the red october we have the hunter sub that shoots itself so so good beyond that all of the other ships in that film make it out fine and the titanic is completely destroyed that it took nearly a hundred years to really recover any pieces of it. Mm-hmm. Presumably the Red October will be disassembled, but you know. 
and will then be reused to like astrophysics supplies. The Rectober is going to be like reverse engineered. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think I read somewhere that someone's trying to recreate the Titanic just because. There have been people who have on and off considered doing that for decades. It seems like we should not do that, but whatever. Yeah. I mean, really, the time to do it was in 2012 for the 100-year anniversary. Yeah. But 2012. Yeah, maybe maybe not tempt the fates. <laughs> not flaunt our destiny cleavage against the ravages of the sea. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Huffer October wins both the Ship of Theseus Award and gets to move on to uh, the next round of the bracket. Mm-hmm. What might I be going up against when we get there next time? Hunt for Red October will be going up against either the Poseidon Adventure or Hotel Transylvania 3, which we'll be discussing in next week's episode. Wow, I... Huh. Huh. No matter what happens, this is going to be a weird episode. It definitely is. I mean, they're both on cruise ships. That's true. <laughs> and there the similarities end. I mean, in Hotel Transylvania 3, they're, like, successful in saving everyone on the cruise ship. Yeah, that's not the case there. <laughs> also, the Poseidon Adventure strongly implies the existence of God against man, whereas Hotel Transylvania 3 makes you assume that God has left us all alone. <laughs> <laughs> Was it really that bad? Nah, I just wanted to make a joke. Fair enough. If you want to hear more of our jokes, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your pods. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.